Hello everyone, I hope you are doing well. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen and I want to welcome you to our Futurist Blue podcast, a place to discuss about Europe's economic and policy-related challenges. And this is a Funcas Europe and Agenda Publica initiative. And we hope we can bring in new ideas for a more inspiring debate about Europe. I'm joined by Ian Beck, Professorial Research Fellow of LSE and of Funcas Europe as well. Ian, thank you for joining us. I'm pleased to be with you. All right. And here with us today also, well, joining from Madrid, I should have said that Ian is in London. I myself am in Brussels. And Raymond Torres, uh, Funcas Europe Director, is joining us from perhaps, I assume, sunny Madrid. Or how are things there today, Raymond? <laughs> Not so sunny, I suppose. Average weather, average European weather okay. today. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you both for joining. I think um, we're here to talk about uh, Europe in a post-pandemic world. And uh, I, I think everyone likes to talk about the post-pandemic world because we can't wait for the pandemic to be over. And vaccination has started in the UK. Vaccination will, will start in Europe in the rest of Europe in a few days. So I think it's fair to say that 2021 will be a different year, maybe even a different world. Um, and the first thing I'd like to ask you is about uh, recovery, is the word we're hearing the most. This is about 2021, it's about recovery. We had a terrible 2020. The economic shock has been so painful for so many families and businesses. But now if we combine two things, vaccination, and an ambitious recovery plan like we never saw before to put the economy back on track. So I'd like to ask, Ian, what are the key ingredients so that we see real recovery, strong recovery next year? Well, the first thing that's going to be required is a continuation of the macroeconomic stimulus packages. That's a combination of extremely loose monetary policy and the European Central Bank and other central banks being willing to continue with their variations on quantitative easing and a continued effort by the fiscal authorities to keep spending money as well as to start investing in the elements that are going to stimulate recovery of the labour market and to ensure that companies which have been particularly badly hit but which remain viable are still able to continue operating. I would put this in two ways. There are, there are on, on one side, risks of financial stability, which the monetary policy element can, can deal with. But there are also concerns about the, the aftermath of the pandemic being scarring both in the labor market and in the corporate market. So that although consumer demand may bounce back very rapidly, there are industries which are going to be in desperate trouble as a result of the pandemic. And we need to follow how they operate to ensure that they don't go bust when they're still viable companies. All right. So this is uh, central bankers uh, injecting money, keeping keeping doing that, and uh, governments supporting businesses so they don't go bank bankrupt. Uh, Raymond, do you agree with those those elements that that Ian is putting on the table? Yes, I, I broadly agree with Ian that uh, the, these are the key policy ingredients for 2021. I think this will be a very special year uh, because it will be really a year in, in two different uh, parts. The, the first half of the year 
uh, I am afraid will continue to be very weak with um, uh, still uh, very much influenced by the extent of lockdowns. Indeed, there is a, vac a vaccine, but uh, it will take time to extend the vaccine to the entire population. And in the meantime, uh, we will see what we are seeing now, which is a third wave uh, with uh, consequences, both health consequences and, of course, economic consequences as well, because, uh, of course, governments are taking measures to restrict activity and mobility. So the first half of the year will continue to be very much what we are seeing at the moment, at least until uh, the months of uh, April, May, uh, when a significant part of the population will, will, be, will start to be vaccinated. The second half may be um, a, very, a very surprising uh, situation where we may have a, a recovery which is actually even faster than what many people predict because it will be a combination of both the policy uh, measures that uh, Ian was mentioning before, uh, highly expansionary fiscal policy, including EU funds, um, very much accommodating monetary policy, exceptionally accommodating monetary policy, and of course, the impacts of the vaccine itself on uh, spending by uh, consumers, spending by enterprises. And so the second half of the year may, may actually be very uh, a very, very brisk uh, recovery. But I think even um, the second half of the year will, will continue, we will continue to face the legacy of a crisis, both in financial terms, as Ian was mentioning, with a lot of enterprise debt concentrated in particular sectors, uh, many viable firms on the brink of bankruptcy. So there is a risk here, financial risk, and also a social risk, because we are talking about a very significant whining of inequalities with the risk of more unemployment. So uh, more prospects for recovery next year, but at the same time coinciding with financial and social risks. So if we, if we look at the second half of the year, following that what Raymond is saying, that the first part of the year is going to be much more difficult because we will still be vaccinating. Uh, so assuming that by half year, uh, most of the population has been vaccinated and we, we recover uh, freedoms and the economy it's in a, in a, in a, in a seeing more activity how can we make out of this crisis let's say an opportunity to, to really transform our economies to modernize them because I think this is the idea of the recovery funds this is about greening the economies this is about digitalizing the economies so that we are better equipped to to face the post-pandemic world and in fact to even to be better prepared if we need to confront another pandemic so ian what is is there a real opportunity here there's certainly an opportunity and it coincides with a program that, that had already been articulated by ursula von der leyen prior to the crisis which is to be transformative in europe particularly in the directions you mentioned the green deal and uh, trying to enhance europe's position in, in the digital economy However, there's a risk in this, which is that if you focus, as is the case in the recovery and resilience facility, the big fund that's being put together by the European level and finally agreed last week after all the disputes over rule of law, if you focus on these two areas, the risk is that it's not immediate. We're looking for a fiscal stimulus. We need that fiscal stimulus to be quick, 
it's already substantial at national level but the idea that the the funds from europe are going to provide the same kind of fiscal stimulus if it's long-term investment projects is maybe a bit exaggerated now you asked about the opportunity the opportunity is certainly there because there is funding which has not been there in the past from the european level there is a willingness to go ahead in the green and digital directions but there's also a kind of global rebalancing taking place where Europe is, is trying to think, well, what, does the, what lessons do we draw from the pandemic? Well, one was that we exposed our dependence, particularly on China. Therefore, Europe needs to, be, to, to deal with it, that dependence. The second is there's been what you might call weaponization by the United States, particularly under the, the current president of some of the instruments of economic governance using the dollar to punish European companies which deal with the wrong kinds of uh, customers such as Iran. And Europe is now seeking a degree of independence from the other parts of the world. And this is summarized in the, the two word expression, strategic autonomy. The Green Deal is something which is very important to Europeans across the board. And it's ironically one of the things that unites the Brits and the continental Europeans, because Boris Johnson has on his agenda holding the COP26 summit towards the end of this of 2021 in Glasgow. And all of put all of this together, there is an opportunity for a new direction, but we have to be careful not to allow the an obsession with these new directions to detract from the ability to deal with the immediate crisis, which is a shortage of demand. Raymond may be, may be correct in saying that the second half of, of 2021 will be quite dynamic as consumers return to spending. But consumers also depend on having the income coming in from employment. And if that income has been upset by companies not prospering, then it may still need the immediate fiscal stimulus as well as the longer term initiatives. Uh, Raymond, before I... I, 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 we move on and we touch on some of the elements that Ian mentioned that I think they are all in our minds, like Brexit and the, the global dimensions of the, 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 uh, this transformational crisis. I wanted to ask you about, uh, so we have a long-term vision in terms of the recovery plan. It, it's, it's very ambitious, but has a, a long-term uh, conception and vision. And we have short-term needs of those businesses that have been closed, uh, at least uh, they, they may have been selling less, producing less, maybe not selling or not producing at all, and they are waiting. And the, and the program, the response from Europe is ambitious, but it's, it's a long-term response. So how, how can we combine both elements without having too much frustration? Well, the first thing I would like to say is that uh, not enough attention has been paid, paradoxically, to the short-term needs, to the short-term dimension. Uh, because indeed, uh, we see in particular in Spain, but not only, uh, in Spain it's particularly pronounced, a number of sectors in tourism, those sectors that depend on human contact, that are in very bad shape. And um, not enough attention has been paid to the needs of those sectors. We need, for example, a new instrument to recapitalize those sectors, or at least provide some direct support, possibly even direct transfers, to avoid a chain of bankruptcies, which would not only shrink the productive base needed for the later recovery, but it would also run the risk of a financial crisis. If those losses, those enterprise closures 
lead to, uh, in fact, uh, financial problems in banks and therefore a risk of financial contagion of the, of the crisis. I think not enough attention has been paid to this and certainly this should be, I hope, a priority for both the, the European Union as such and, of course, individual countries. Uh, the second element is that there is indeed, I agree with you, and there is a certain tension between the long term, a very important vision of uh, greening the economy, digitalizing it, competing with China and the US in terms of high tech giants and so on. But the, on the other hand, the, the, the recovery, so the, the, the importance of recovery. And I, th I, I think the way to reconcile this, and to respond to your question, Carlos, more directly, would be to perhaps concentrate uh, the initial efforts of uh, financial support, fiscal policy, EU funds, concentrate those on recovery. In other words, support for alien sectors, immediately kick-starting uh, demand and the economy, even if it means that it's not necessarily so much greener in a way or more digital and, and already now starting to prepare for later rounds of EU funds. And those EU funds later on from 22 onwards would be more about transforming the economy because this takes time. It requires a strategy and much more coordination than we think among member countries. So I think, in other words, I think for a successful uh, 2021 year, we will need um, to find a way to indeed distinguish between the recovery and the transformation. There may be areas of intersection between the two. For example, rehabilitation of housing is something that I think most economies can immediately respond to incentives of this kind and at the same time it may be quite important from the point of view of greening the economy but there may be other cases where the uh, interaction is less less obvious uh, and so i think the most important will be uh, uh, emphasizing this year the 2021 the, f the first year uh, emphasize recovery elements of, of the strategy and i think uh, by doing so and indeed uh, giving more thoughts to the transformative elements, it will be also easier to connect with perhaps a redefined US agenda, because I don't think the US will move so quickly to discuss multilateral issues or relations with Europe. I think the immediate preoccupation of the new US administration will be much more uh, trying to recover indeed the US economy. And so I think this could also coincide with the US strategy as well. Carlos, allow me to just to just to add two points, two words of caution. One is the expression consumer wariness. We recognise that consumers will want to start spending again, but in some areas, consumers are going to be apprehensive about returning to past habits. And I think this is particularly going to be the case in an industry like tourism or travel, where there will be suspicion on the part of individuals saying, do I dare start traveling again? What risks will I be taking? Uh, can I sit on a, an enclosed space with 100 other people or 200 other people on a, on a flight to, to enjoy myself on the, the Costa Brava in Spain? These are going to be serious questions. The second short point now is that the, the rules governing the use of the recovery and resilience facility are very similar to those for the EU's structural and, and investment funds, cohesion policy as it's called. And this requires quite strong conditions on the way projects are put forward. 
The problem that arises here is that in many of the countries which are expected to be the biggest recipients of these new funds, there's a big lag in, in putting forward projects. And it may be that the absorption capability of some of the countries will be difficult. In other words, the money won't be spent as quickly as some hope, even though it's massive in amount. There's been there's been challenges, uh, to, to say the least, in terms of the absorption capacity of member states. That's indeed one of the one of the questions that we see ahead of the, the recovery plans in Europe. But I, I wanted to move on and I wanted to ask you both about uh, Brexit. I, I don't expect from you to tell me whether there's going to be a deal or no deal. We, we still don't know. But what we know is that the UK and the EU are going to be neighbors and, and, and they've been part of the EU altogether for a while. But now the UK is uh, starting a new journey. So no matter we see a deal or no deal, they, I think they need to they need to live with one another and they need to have uh, synergies because the interests, the converging interests that they have are huge. So I wanted to ask you both of you, how do you see this new relationship going next year with or without deal in terms of, are there, do, you, do you expect frictions? Do you expect a new understanding on a number of things? Ian mentioned before that climate change is an issue where both parties agree. And that's an important point. But what other elements do you envision as being important to understand how is this relationship going to work? There is evidently some misunderstanding between the two sides negotiating teams because the EU side is very clear. It wants to insist on the UK respecting what's called the level playing field rules. Whereas the whole point of Brexit from the British side has been to, to enable the British, the British government to set its own regulatory framework. And that's a, that's a tension that's, that has no easy resolution. I understand, though, that it's likely to be solved relatively quickly. And I would add a second point, which is that the idea that Britain is going to diverge enormously from the EU regulatory model is, to me, just incorrect. The UK has a very similar level of social protection as a share of GDP to the EU average. We are in favour of the same sorts of things on environmental regulation. The UK minimum wage has been rising at a pace faster than inflation for several years. So in short, Britain has very much a European social and regulatory model. The tension comes with the future. There are some in the UK who are quite uh, radical on the right who would like to see a massive deregulation. My assertion is it simply isn't going to happen. And therefore, trust is going to be a key issue between Europe and the UK in future on how regulation evolves. Now, the second area that I'd highlight is that there are very strong connections, not just exports and imports, but supply chains and supply networks between the two blocks. Therefore, there is a, an extremely strong motivation to conclude, if not an immediate deal in the next few days, to continue working towards something that, that uh, does not cause friction in the exchanges across borders, both exports and imports and the supply networks. And to me, in the end, it's absurd that it, look, that it seems to be stuck now on the question of fishing, which is 0.12% of the British economy, maybe a little bit more in Spain or in France, but still not very much. It should be capable of being fudged in the time-honoured Brussels fashion. So I think we're looking for an answer of a recipe of scalloped fudge or fudged scallops. <laughs> Raymond, would you like to react yes. to that? 
Yes, quite quite interesting. Um, the 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 I, I would say that the the first point I would like to add is that I I am confident and I I am aware I'm taking some risk here that there will be some agreement by by the end of the year by the set deadline. I mean it will be quite difficult. It may be reached at the very last moment after several hurt attacks. Uh, but I, I am confident, if, if only uh, because if, not only because is it, it is in a treaty, the deadline, but also because, from what I understand, uh, uh, you, you are, the UK business sector um, is, is not in the same position than the earlier deadlines. Uh, the earlier deadlines uh, were before the pandemics. We're talking uh, uh, about a very, very different situation, much more difficult with, from what I understand, uh, a significant reduction in the inventories. I mean, what, what UK business did in the past was to accumulate inventories in order to allow for a, a, its own transition period, in a way, whatever the politicians would negotiate, they had the possibility to leave in the intervening time. It's no longer the case, it seems, at least not, not so much compared to before. So there is a lot of pressure on the UK side, and likewise on the EU side. Uh, we we now we just discussed a number of uh, possible good news: the vaccine, EU funds, monetary policy accommodating a new US administration. I think we need uh, it would be good to find an agreement uh, with with the UK. I think it's something that uh, would, would be very positive for the EU economy. Of course, much less important than fighting the, the COVID crisis, of course, but still, it's an element. So I think from both sides, there's probably much more pressure to reach an agreement than was the case before the pandemic. So that's the first point I would like to say. The second point is that no matter what, uh, even with an agreement, there will be, I think, uh, a long transition period because, I mean, probably whatever the text, uh, there will be many things which will remain unsettled or not clearly settled. And so there will be still uh, a period uh, uh, of, of transition. And, and I don't think it will be the end of Brexit in that sense, that uh, many things will need to be rediscussed, negotiated for uh, a relatively long transition. And the third point is that from the EU point of view, it's extremely important to be clear about the social, environmental, and in particular tax standards so that I mean, there, what Ian was mentioned before, the level playing field, he says he's confident, Ian, and I pretty much believe whatever Ian says about Brexit in particular, he's a real expert, uh, and I'm confident that, you know, we need to trust and so on, but I think trust also needs to be matched with some clear commitments and clear rules so that we are not in a situation where there can be unfair tax competition next door for European countries, and the same for social standards and environmental standards, even though I, I very much agree that the UK at the moment is relatively to the EU average in very similar position, but uh, we don't know what will happen in the future. So I, I hope this will be clarified after the transition period. Yes, in fact, Raymond, we, we trust Ian so much on Brexit. We've been calling him every time <laughs> we wanted to know what was going on and, and, and we trust his advice so much. And I, I think I agree with you both. Uh, we have so many... Uh, converging interests, uh, leaving apart the, the little fisheries issues that it would be completely uh, ununderstandable uh, if we don't see a, a, a deal in the next in the next days. But I think allow me to move on if I if I may because sure. we don't have one, so much one time. One brief thing, if oh, you yeah, allow me to, to add go it. Ahead. Uh, 
Go ahead. On a more lighthearted note, we, we learned yesterday that a agreement had been reached on movement of animals, pets, between the UK and the EU, irrespective of whether an overall deal is made. And this is great news for my dog, who has a Spanish passport, <laughs> because she comes from Cadiz. She is now going to be able to go, go back to her favourite beaches in the, in the north east of northwest of France. Excellent. Yeah, I think the, the free movement of pets, it's uh, those are very encouraging, <laughs> very encouraging, encouraging news. So uh, I understand. Uh, I understand again uh, that you interpret this as some, it, it, something that uh, bodes well for the final settlement of the agreement. Exactly, and my my perita is very happy. Ian, Ian, were you were you and your perita lobbying for this deal in for the free movement of pets, or it's a coincidence? Well, of course, we have been lobbying very hard, and we're claiming all the success for this. <laughs> all right, let me let me move on. I want to ask you about looking um, looking globally to see uh, in terms of the, the the influence and the capacity of Europe to be uh, to be a power, which is like a like a taboo word for for Europe. It's, it's we always talk about soft power. We, we talk about a strategic autonomy, so we talk about different things, but looking, looking to the global impact that we can have in, in Europe, in the EU, acting together, uh, there's a concept I'd like, I like to explore with you too, and it's the so-called the Brussels effect. And I'd like you to listen to, to, to something that Anu Bradford, who's the, the, the author of this concept, let's, let's listen to her. Let's see how she explains this, this idea. In many ways, uh, the idea of regulatory sovereignty awaiting the UK on the other side of Brexit is an illusion. It was a false promise of the campaign. Uh, in many ways, it is the, the Brussels effect that will undermine Brexit and not the Brexit that will undermine the Brussels effect. So what we may end up seeing is that the UK companies will be living in an ever more regulated Europe after the Brexit has really been implemented, because they have chosen to become a rule taker and not a rule maker, and they will be potentially taking those regulation in the all the more regulated European Union. Raymond, do you do you want to react first to this uh, to what you, what you just heard? Well, it is true that uh, by by leaving uh, the EU, uh, given that uh, as as the Spanish uh, Foreign Affairs Minister said. We live in an interdependent world. Uh, in fact, the, the UK, even even if it leaves the EU, still will have to abide by the rules uh, of the agreement with the EU. And uh, one of them will be, uh, of course, the issue of uh, the, the whole normative apparatus of the EU, which is necessary in order to participate in the uh, EU single market. And so, in fact, uh, the UK had a very strong influence in the past on EU rulemaking, and now it will be more of a rule, rule taker. Uh, and I think that in that sense, I, I, would, I would tend to agree. Right. Ian? The former UK permanent representative in Brussels, Ivan Rogers, has made this point very emphatically. He argues that there are three underlying models globally, Chinese, American and European, and the UK cannot have an independent one. The result is that the UK is going to have to choose really where it aligns. And the, real, the, the only real answer is to the European model. European model. OK, uh, I, I want to we, we are we've been already uh, t touching on a number of number of issues. Um, 
But before we close this conversation, I'd like to ask you one final question that I think it's in the mind of many policymakers in Europe these days is whether we're going to see a relaunch of the transatlantic relationship now that Biden will, will be in the White House in January. So what do you expect in this regard? Do you expect a, a real, I mean, of course, things are going to be different because Biden is pretty different to Trump and Trump was not a, was not a friend of Europe, let's say. So things are going to be different. But up to what point? Uh, what are the expectations in this regard? Uh, Raymond, would you like to start now? Yes, I think there will be a change in the discourse uh, of the U.S. administration. In that sense, the tone of the discussions and the relationship will be much more, if you wish, diplomatic. That was the case with uh, with Trump, quite clearly. Um, I'm not so sure that this will be followed by um, a very significant, radical and quick, substantive change in the transatlantic relationship, because, first of all, the Biden administration will be very busy, uh, at least in the beginning, the first year, which is next year, will be very busy trying to stimulate the economy, really recover from, from the crisis. And that will probably concentrate much of uh, uh, the preoccupation of, of that administration. The, the second reason is that, um, in fact, the, some of the, uh, the protectionist uh, move a mood uh, of, of the Trump administration, in fact, is something which is shared uh, by a, a wide spectrum of population. So it's it's very unclear whether Biden will very quickly move towards, let's say, uh, a very open trade, open investment agenda, uh, departing very sharply from the Trump administration, apart from the discourse. The discourse will be much more polite, uh, pleasant, and so on, but I'm not so sure we will see very significant concrete steps. Perhaps there will be some symbolic measures like uh, some trade barriers will be postponed or relieved. I I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't think uh, the general tone, will, the, the general sub substance will change vis-a-vis uh, -vis the past. Where I think we need, um, in any case, there, there may be more convergence is more on the reform of the multilateral system. The multilateral system is in crisis. We I think the COVID uh, crisis has shown that uh, cooperation is less and less the rule, and what matters is competition at the moment. And then this this can be quite detrimental to goals like the environment or international tax policy. We need much more cooperation, and for that we need to rebuild a multilateral system, which is proving unable to deal with the, the, the new area which we are witnessing now, where we have new actors, in particular China, which is, of course, very soon the number one economy in the world. And the whole system has to be rebuilt. And for that, we, I hope that uh, Europe and the US will be able to cooperate and in, involve in others in order to rebuild the system. Ian, a final word on, on the transatlantic agenda for next year before we close. I, I fully agree with what Raymond has just said about the, the change of tone and also his words of caution that we shouldn't expect the US to revert to some golden era when it was very much in tune with what's going on in Europe. The, the movement to push Europe to do different things predates Trump, particularly on things like a contribution to security. And we would also expect that the impetus that came from the last few years should push Europe itself to think how it changes. 
Now, it's true that we should be reassured that uh, the, one of the first things that Biden says he will do is to rejoin the, the Paris Accord on climate change. I suspect he will also be a little bit more friendly towards the World Trade Organization, which had been more or less destroyed by, by Trump refusing to, to name people to the, the appellate body. But the challenge for Europe is how do you become an equivalent power to China and the US in circumstances in which fragmentation in Europe is often inhibited. This is very much from Emmanuel Macron's agenda, but the, the Europe which protects, he wants to see development at European level. And I think that is beginning to happen, whether it's able to continue in the context of dealing with COVID is much more difficult to anticipate. Although the mere fact that uh, the Europeans were able, were able to agree the next generation EU recovery fund is itself a signal that working together has been seen as desirable. Put all that together, and I'm reasonably optimistic that a more assertive Europe, one which exercises what we might call sharp power, trying to coerce others, can materialize in the, in the coming years, and it will work better with a uh, Biden regime or a, a more better toned regime in Washington to, to collaborate on solving global problems. But we need a, a major effort on, on global governance. A EU that is willing to work more uh, together as a real union, and on the other side of the Atlantic, a, a Democrat president that is willing to work more with Europe. Uh, I think that's that can be an interesting combination uh, for Europe, particularly for Europe. Um, I want to thank you all. Unfortunately, we've been uh, we, we've covered a lot of things, and we've been we've we've been talking for some time now. And I'd like to thank you both for your contributions. I think this is going to be a an exciting 2021, hopefully better than 2020. And I'm looking forward to see uh, these developments that we are discussing now, and and to to get your input and your contributions uh, during the next year. Uh, Ian, Raymond, it was a real pleasure. Take care. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm really delighted at, uh, at this and uh, also to join forces with Ian on, on this. Thank you to both of you and Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. <laughs> Feliz Navidad. Thank you both. Bye, Take care. bye. Thank you all for joining. This was all for now. We will come back soon with more exciting speakers to talk about Europe's economic and policy-related key debates. Future is Blue is a Funcas Europe and Agenda Publica initiative. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen, and the production of this podcast is carried out by Franco Deledone. Thank you all. Thank you.